Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the My Love of Golf podcast. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I really do appreciate you giving up your time to let me talk into your ears, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. I really do enjoy the fact that uh, you are listening, and I appreciate all of the feedback and kind comments that you leave. This week's interview is with one of the great guys of the Australian professional golf game. Yes, it's the winner of the Australian 2012 PGA, Daniel Popovich. Now, I get the pleasure and the uh, absolute pleasure it is to uh, work with Daniel in his role now with Mizuno. So he's working in the golf industry, applying his knowledge to the craft and the trade of professional club fitting, professional club sales, everything that uh, I need to know about the brand that he now represents, I get from Daniel. But you probably know Daniel from his time as a pro and when he won that uh, Australian PGA event. Well, we get to talk about that and we get to talk about his career in golf his early days in golf, why he became a golfer, and what golf means to him now. So that's this week's interview. But stay tuned, because there's next week's interview as well. And you have to tune back in for next week's interview, because that's when we talk to Daniel about his role at Mizuno and the great new products that Mizuno have just brought out. So he starts to give us a little bit of that insight into the world and the work that he does now with Mizuno. So this week, Daniel and his story about his golf career. Next week, his world now with his golf career in his role at Mizuno. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, like, all of that wonderful stuff that you do really helps the podcast get into the ears of as many people as we can. Really do appreciate it. And until next time, well, next week with Daniel Popovich again for part two, we'll see you then. Daniel Popovich, welcome to the My Love of Golf podcast. How are you? It's great to have you here, mate. It's great to be sitting in, you know, finally being able to sit down with a human being and, you know, have a face-to-face conversation, albeit socially distanced and correctly. uh, We're having a a meeting here this morning and it's great to catch up with you. How are you, mate? Thank you, Ross. Yeah, very good. I'm actually, um, yeah, very relieved that I'm out of the house and out of my 5K lockdown zone. It's good to be able to get back out in the road and do a bit of work. You know, you've uh, recently moved into the golf industry as... My, my guy for Mizuno, and um, yep. it's an absolute pleasure to have someone with your personal qualities and credentials representing one of the brands that uh, I'll, I have to look after down here, which is a, a, a real p- privilege to have you here. But we'll talk about your golf career from a professional... Uh, no, sorry, I'll rephrase that. We'll talk, we've will talk. we got two golf career professional sides that we're going to talk about. Your, your role now with Mizuno, and we'll come to that. Sure. But those of us that know you from your golf professional career as a player would probably remember you from, I guess, your biggest win. Yep. And this win that sort of changed, I guess, um, imagine your life, yeah? Is that right? Yeah, no doubt. I think I'm still kind of reaping off the rewards from from winning it, to be honest with you. And, and um, yeah, been lucky enough to come back into the golfing industry. But um, now my life's in a very, very different space. Yeah. Two little kids, beautiful wife. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably much happier now than if I was still trying to slug it out on tour. So. Yeah. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm very happy and stable with, with where I'm at. That's great, and you can tell. And, yeah, we've only got to you know, meet a few times now. First time was down at the golf course, and, yeah. you know, you're playing with some of the big boys down there. <laughs> it was great to, um, you know, put a face to the name for me. And, you know, that win that I mentioned there was the 2012 Australian PGA up at Hyatt Coolum or, or whatever yep. it's now called, Palmer, whatever. Yep. And, uh, you know, it was your, if I remember right, then you can please correct me if I'm wrong, your first year on tour or your rookie year on tour, Yeah. Rookie year on the Australian tour. tour. Yeah, yeah. so um, 
my rookie year was the year previous on the Alps tour um, over in Europe. So that's like a, I guess your third tier or third level tour over there. They've got a bunch of them, like Euro Pro Tour. You might have heard yep. of. Um, same level as that. So you're only playing for sort of fifty thousand euros uh, per week. Winner winner takes about ten or ten to fifteen thousand euros. Um, but then, yes. Yeah, so it was my rookie year on the Australasian tour, um, and yeah, I guess. To be honest, I couldn't have scripted a better year, in particular with finishing with a win. Um, but yeah, and I was, uh, yes, it, by far probably the best week of my life, like golfing wise. Yeah. Um, didn't really miss a shot, hold so many putts, and yeah. Well, I've got a question about, a oh, number of questions, I guess, about that tournament, and I'll come back to that. But let, let's get, wind it all the way back. Mm. You're not a Melbourne boy. By, no. by by origin, you're no. you're a Canberrian. Cam- yeah, the nation's capital. So yeah, grew up. Grew up in Canberra, born and raised. Um, didn't move to Melbourne till I was fourteen. But yeah, my, my early days in Canberra, I, I remember very fondly. Grew up on a like a cul-de-sac street, um, and there was about oh, I think there was about eleven or twelve kids, and we were all within sort of two or three years from each other. So always had um, friends to play with. Oh, I'm an only child, um, so always had um, friends to play with, and what I still keep in touch with a bunch of them. Um, and uh, yeah, didn't didn't really start golf until I was like eleven years old. Um, dad got me into golf. I think like most uh, kids, when they start, either their dad or their mum or their uncle or whoever it is, someone in their family starts them into golf. But um, my dad was a uh, like a very successful soccer player when he was living overseas. My dad's um, yeah from what was former Yugoslavia um, and played for Red Star Belgrade. I don't know if you've ever yeah. So yeah, he was a he was a very good soccer player. So um, um, to cut a long story short, there he was very influential on soccer. Like he was always want, like pushing me for soccer. But I think for um, young kids, and I think you're a parent as well, but when you have young kids, the more that you push them towards a sport, the more they want to sort of rebel and, and try something else. Um, and I think that's just a natural thing with me. I I was, I feel like I'm good at soccer, or I was good at soccer, but then I had a passion for golf. I love the challenge of golf. Um, so, yeah, about 11 years old, my dad went to go and play with some friends and my mum was out, so he had to take me and wanted to grab a ball and try and hit a ball as far as I could and... Um, yeah, I guess the story with me starting golf was he gave me a bunch of balls and gave me a club and wanted me to hit it over a lake and I couldn't get it over the lake I hit all these balls in the water um, and then yeah eventually you want to get better and better at it and, and go back to that lake and try to hit it over and yeah eventually did that and, and moved on from there so he didn't mind you whacking his balls into the lake? <laughs> uh, so to say. So um, my d- I also had to fish the balls out. So, ah, yes. yeah, and there was a lot of stories with that. So um, my dad used to have one of those ball retrievers, mm. like most kids like getting balls out of the water or finding whatever they can just to waste time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I used to grab that ball retriever and whenever we went like a, a hole around the lake, I used to just grab the ball retriever out and look at look for balls in the water and hold the group up behind because I'd be... <laughs> Hundred meters behind everyone in in my dad's group and and um, yeah, so those balls that I fished out of the water were the balls that I could use. Yeah, we've actually got a fairly similar sort of background there, yeah, right. you know. Like <laughs> so, my dad moved to Australia to play football. Yep, uh, he didn't play anywhere near the heights of Red Star Belgrade. Absolutely mm. not. Uh, it was just a team in Edinburgh, but it certainly came here. Tried to get me into soccer. I was unlike you. You were good at soccer. I was rubbish at soccer, and that was what drove me to golf right. because I needed to do something. And similar sort of thing, you know, I would go out with him, play golf uh, in my quest to, you know, find the golf balls in my sort of fiscally 
frugal nature, um, replace the golf balls that I lost, we would go out and into the creeks and get our um, shoes off and yep. go and search for some balls and then try and sell them to the pro shop for 20 cents or you know, I might have even been five cents back when I was back doing it. But, yeah, we'd go out into the creeks and do all that. It was good fun. Yeah. Yeah, so footballing background. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Who do you support? Uh, well, where? <laughs> well, So uh, EPL, yep. Liverpool. Um, yeah, my dad's okay. Manchester United. I've always kind of had this thing with my dad. My dad follows, like, uh, Carlton in AFL. Yeah, things like that. But, yeah, EPL, Liverpool, I guess over here, Melbourne Victory. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm a, a massive supporter of soccer anymore, but it was great to see Liverpool win yeah. um, recently, yeah. I'm not a Liverpool fan, okay, but it was hard not to be impressed with uh, what they achieved. Amazing, yeah. yeah. Amazing season. And some of the players in that squad, just uh, phenomenal. Mm. Uh, well, just for your benefit, um, you know, I probably support a couple of frustrating teams. Arsenal, yep. frustrating. <laughs> uh, hard of Midlothian, challenging to sport at the best of times, although we did have a great win in the Scottish Cup semi-final on the weekend okay. against the local arch-rivals Hibernian. Um, Heart of Midlothian got relegated through, you know, COVID period. Sure, competition being cut yep. and they got chucked. Um, so it was a good win. And um, but my, yeah, you know, my passion is Melbourne City over here. Oh, so great. I'm glad you qualified that and said, you know, probably not so close to uh, Melbourne victories. <laughs> so we can keep talking. But uh, but I know the uh, Melbourne City boys, who some of them uh, do listen to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very passionate Melbourne City for oh, support. Call me a Melbourne City fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to introduce you to some, some of the boys, maybe. And, Sounds great. Uh, because they, there's, there's some of the guys down there that love their golf. So, um, yeah, we can do that one day. Now, Canberra then to Melbourne. What what was the, the – was it because Dad came down for football or something like that? Or No, so um, reason being was my auntie, she had a uh, – she always lived in Melbourne with her husband, my uncle. Um and uh, she had a business here and um, my dad had retired, my mum had retired and um, my auntie needed help with the business so we moved to Melbourne. Yeah. Um, it was nothing to do with golf or um, yeah, sport or anything like that. It was solely just to um, be closer to family and also help out um, with, with my auntie's business and uh, moved, moved to uh, Baldwin, went to Baldwin High. Um, dad always worked in the city, felt like, yeah, eight days a week kind of thing um but uh yeah i was always i guess playing sport um it was it's obviously hard to move uh interstate as a kid like especially around that sort of early high school years where um you know most kids like kick up their relationships in year seven and and follow them through to year 12 and, and beyond whereas for me i was i was coming into year nine and like trying to uh, meet new friends and whether common interests and stuff like that whether it's golf or or soccer or whatever sport that I was playing, cricket. Um, and I guess uh, it was lucky for me that, um, yeah, the transition from my home club in, in Canberra to Melbourne, I had reciprocal rights with Riversdale Golf Club, um, but unfortunately there wasn't too many juniors there. Uh, they didn't really have a junior program at the time, mm. um, but um, p- represented um, my school for, for golf at uh, like sort of inter-school tournament or whatever. And there was a, a gentleman by the name Tom Morley from Q Golf Club. And he saw, yeah, he saw me and, and knew that, you know, I was a new kid, um, like, in this sort of, like, school tournaments and whatnot. And he invited me to Q Golf Club. And, um, yeah, long and behold, I ended up being a member at Q Golf Club and, and still have a lot of, yeah, very close friends and, and some guys that I grew up playing with, uh, some of my best friends from there. Do you think you might go back there and join up or...? Funnily enough, I was playing with my brother-in-law yesterday and we live both locally. Um, 
and uh, we, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if they'll have me back, I'll, I'll definitely join up. Yeah, there some, there's yeah. Some, I know a few people out there, and uh, there's some great, great bunch of guys that yeah. I know that, that are members there. Yeah, the, the GM out there, Matt, he's done some amazing things um, mm. in regards to, like, trying to boost up, especially that younger mem- membership group, because it is, um, I think, most golf courses around Melbourne, they have, like, a very high age uh, sort of median age at a golf club, and Q was yeah no exception to that. But now he's he's really targeted sort of younger guys. Um, yeah. He's doing some really great things in regards to people that have families. So doing like crèche on Friday afternoon type Perfect. thing. So yeah, it's it's definitely something that excites me. So are you a membership sort of recruiter from Q Golf Club? No, absolutely <laughs> not. You know you know where I'm a member. It's uh, the other end. I live in the other far away on the other end of town. So uh, yep. no, but uh, you know I'm always interested to to hear what people are doing yep. to help contribute to the growth of the game yeah. and you know either at a you know social media level or at a membership level you know I'm really passionate about clubs that are awesome. marketing yeah. the business really well yeah. and always excited to hear yep. uh, things like that um, so let's go back to the golf you know this mm-hmm. obviously you started playing fairly well and you know the transition from elite amateur to professional how did how did your elite amateur career go and the transition into pro golf. To be honest with you, I, I wouldn't call myself um, one of those elite amateurs. I never made it in the VIS. Um, I don't think I made it in the senior state team for Victoria. Um, I, I wasn't really competing at those sort of like those big amateur tournaments, like say Riversdale Cup or um, I can't remember Capera Bowl or yep. uh, some of those other ones. I was never really um, that top level amateur amateur player, and it, I know like sort of fault of my own. I didn't really play in too many of them either. Um, that, those sort of high school um, tournaments or those high school age tournaments, um, I was more concentrating on school. My parents were very, you know, like regimented, you know, school, 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 finish year 12 and get a good mark. So you got that behind you. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't call myself uh, one of those elite amateurs until very late in my um, sort of amateur time, which I was about 24. I didn't turn turn pro till I was, I think, 24, 25, um, which is fairly late, especially nowadays. But yeah. um, the transition for me was I wanted to give it everything. Like, I, I didn't want to, like, leave it by chance. Um, so I worked my butt off uh, practising whilst also working a job in a pizza store. Um, for five and a half years I did that. But, um, yeah, so basically funded my golf. Um, my parents wanted me to... Um, you know, like if I was going to be successful in something, they then and I wanted to use that as a living. They wanted that uh, to be my income, kind of thing, instead of living off my parents or bleeding off their bank account. But um, to cut a long story short, I I um, just ballsed up and I went over to Europe to that that uh, third tier tour, Alps tour over there. Gave it a go. Didn't really play too well, but then came back to to Melbourne. I said. You know, like this is almost my last go of the Australasian tour and, and went to Q school and I was lucky enough to scrape through first stage by one shot. Um, and then second stage, I ended up winning second stage, which lucky enough got me every event for the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, from that it kind of snowballed and, and um, the PGA was the sort of cream on top of the end of that year. And so that's 2012, yeah? Yep, yep. So let's go back to that for a sec. Yep. You rock up to Coolum. Mm-hmm. By all accounts, what I remember, it was a pretty popular tournament on this Australasian tour. You Volatile know. that week, yeah. though, with with uh, Clive Palmer. He had a when I rocked up to the tournament, he had a a, a digger. Yes, that was the nose was in the front of the ninth green, and the the story behind that was he was going to cancel the event by digging up the ninth green. <laughs> um, 
but uh, because there was a disagreement between the PGA and, and he about um, the signage that was around the course. So that would have been yeah that okay. So that was around that time when things started to get a bit funky up there, oh, and yeah. he started putting dinosaurs on the course and that <laughs> yeah, sort of thing. Right. right? Yeah, that was that week. I've only ever been up there once, and uh, it was back in my time working at Mercedes Benz. We had a great, um, of course, I used to organise all the training events, and you sure. know any of the accommodation was always based around a golf course naturally. Yep. Um, so we had a training event up there for a week. So you know I was working, staying at Coolum, mm-hmm. having a training event. So it was a great place to stay, but it was before then. So I saw it in its sort of more normalised or what we remember as that sort of yep. format yeah so that was around that time interesting yeah. i do i remember that now i i, I yeah, remember it was, it was uh, pretty crazy that week because so the pga like I, i'd play most of the events nearly tried nearly all the events but that week it just had a, a different feel about it like it, it you could actually feel the tension mm. um from the yeah i guess the pga representatives like we may not have a tournament this week um even held on the friday Friday morning or Saturday morning? I think it was Friday morning. He held a, a ceremony on the ninth fairway at a bit of big American flag at 9am for like him and his family and friends for the, the uh, anniversary of JFK's uh, passing um, just on the morning of a tournament. As you on do. On the fairway. As you, as you do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, jeepers. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, well, he's an interesting character and mm. you know, not wanted to get political at all. Um, but uh, he I don't think you have to dig too far yeah, to find out what, what an interesting cat uh, Mr. Palmer is mm. up there in Queensland. So, yeah, okay, so that's the start of your, you know, I guess maybe that stage you would have played a couple of other big tournaments in Australia. That yeah, played um, that week there was the Aussie Masters. Um, sorry, not that week, in the, in the le- weeks leading up to it, there was the Australian Masters, uh, then it was New South Wales Open, Australian Open, and then, then the PGA. Yeah. And your, your results in, in the lead-up tournaments? Ooh, uh, actually, Australian Open, I played really well for three rounds and then had a blowout round. It was when it was real windy. Um, Pete Senior won, actually, the week before. Um, I think I played with Rod Pampling in the last round. We were about the... Oh, I think I finished about 30th, roughly. Yep. I can't remember off the top of my head, sorry. But um, a couple of weeks before, or the week before the Australian Open, I finished sixth at the New South Wales Open and felt like I should have won. Mm. Um and that was that was probably the kickstart into I guess the Aussie Open, but Masters I finished about thirtieth as well. But um, yeah, that New South Wales Open sticks out for me a lot because um, I had that feeling of like almost like that you, you you come so close to winning, but you just miss out. That you're, you're even more hungry to, mm. to get it again. And so um, yeah, when I had that opportunity at the Aussie PGA, um, I guess I. I, I lived off um, yeah, that, that close miss at the New South Wales Open, even though this is a bigger event. I just I felt like I didn't want to let go of, of that win. Interesting. So yeah. where, where was the New South Wales Open at that year? Uh, it was in Barrel. It was called, uh, off the top of my head, oh, really nice course, actually. Oh, down near Mittagong or something like that, yeah. Okay. Um, the guy's name that actually designed it, I, I met him and... and Got along really well with him, Frank Phillips. Have you ever heard of him? Old fella, Australian yeah. golfer. He's he's um he's won a couple of Australian Opens. He was an amazing golfer. I think yeah. he might have finished runner up in a British Open. Or you know, I I don't. I never spent a lot of time in my in. I was not playing golf when I was working down that way. So I don't. I, it's not Mount familiar. Broughton. Mount Broughton. Yeah, yeah. Well Mount Broughton uh, was where it was at. Never played there. Okay, so that's that gave you the confidence then to take that form, I guess, and that more so the feeling mm-hmm. into the PGA. Sure. Yeah. So. When you rock up at the PGA and there's all this kerfuffle going on, yeah, you know, what are you what are you thinking? What what what's it feeling like for you? 
I think for all the players, they, lucky enough, the PGA that week, um, it was really well done by them to keep everyone, I guess, calm or to keep everyone like concentrating on what we should be concentrating on. Um, they held a meeting on the... It was either the Tuesday or Wednesday. It might have been the Wednesday after the Pro-Am. And they, they kind of just said, look, yes, it is not the best situation for us, but look, this is what needs to be done for us to get through this week. Because all they were thinking at that stage was actually finishing an event. Um, that's how that's how close it was to be cancelled. Um, uh, and after I guess the first round, uh, well, f- yeah, for us, we got through that because of them. They kind of guided us on what what needed to be done from our end um, to make sure that this completed. So for me, I was I was um, off in the afternoon on the first round. And I shot eight under and I was leading and um, had my interview uh, with the TV. But then straight after the TV interview. Um, Nicole, it was at the time at the PJ, who was the media lady, said to me, she goes, okay, um, like, one, two, three, this is what you need to mention. Thank the course, thank the marshals. Don't mention anything about, like, sort of the Titanic 2 that he was developing and he was, like, pumping on the TV at the time. Don't mention anything about, yeah, him or anything. Just talk about the autonomy. If you get asked a question, just brush it off. Um, so I did the, in, the, the post-round press, whatever. Um, nothing said. Um, but then afterwards, um, I was actually like sort of getting phone calls from like Clive Palmer's assistant and stuff like that saying, can you please mention this? And yeah. So it was, it was to that stage yeah, where it was right. like, it was almost like a, a clash of heads. Um, you should be saying this, you should be doing this from, from do two different people. And I was just like, oh, just leave me alone. I just want to play my golf. Just like, try and win a tournament yeah, here right. and make, it, make yeah. a bit of money. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and that, that. To be honest, that continued all week, but I just, yeah, I kind of just turned my phone off and wanted to concentrate on my golf. And and that went pretty well for you. I was, yeah, very, very, very happy with how, how well it went, yeah. So you mentioned about, you know, channeling that energy from, you know, the New South Wales Open and the other tournaments. Mm-hmm. You know, what was what was different? How did that feel? How did that translate from a golfer's perspective? Um, you know, I'm interested in the mental side of the game of yep. golf, you know, with my work with, um, my friendship with Jamie and the more so playing golf with him and learning from him for yep. free. Um, what was that like? What was different? Um, it's so hard to say. I guess that's a million-dollar question that everyone wants to know. Like, how yeah. can you how can you translate that confidence or that belief um, into every single week or everything that you do in life? Um, really hard thing to, to, I guess, come back and say. But for me, in comparison to weeks that I've, I've played poorly on tour and I reflect back on that PGA win... Um, I just kind of knew that I was going to play well, like especially after that first round. Um, I just kind of, yeah, living off that like sort of close finish at, at New South Wales, but also not playing my best in the other big events, being the Australian Open, Australian Masters, but still being thereabouts. I knew that I was I was so close mm. um, and had a practice round with Jeff Ogilvy the week of the PGA and, and uh, with my good friend Ryan Lynch. And we both kind of looked at each other and just like, he's not that much better. He, he was number... I can't even remember in the world at the time, but, you know, an awesome player. And just thinking, like, there's not that much better. And I think... And I think for me, like, it it was a a culmination of, like, say, close finishes, um, you know, being so close to sort of holding a couple more parts and being in a top 10 or being, you know, in a top 20 or something, moving from, like, say, a 72 that you might have had, which is your bad round for the week, to a 68 is then putting you in the top three position. Um, So for me, I knew that I was so close. I knew that I had the game. The game was there. Just needed a few things to go my way and. And, um, and they did. And when they started going my way is when I believed that they would keep going my way. And, and sure enough, it, yeah. 
belief is, yeah, is, the is a positive, uh, yep. a positive um, and thinking, yep. positive influence on on your way of thinking, and that's yep. the influence on your behaviour. Yep. One interesting thing that I find when I talk to uh, golfers you know, who've performed at the highest level to recount certain situations is that they can recount with this unbelievable degree of clarity. Mm-hmm. Can you can you take me through that final hole? Final hole, no problems. The seventeenth hole in my second shot, not not well, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, the final hole, no problems. The, the final hole, I'll stand on the tee, actually. So um, the, the seventeenth hole, not well, because you don't want to remember it. it? Was, no, no, no. That was I actually the point where yeah. it, where, where it was like the big big turn. So yeah, right. um, during the round, Rod Pampling birdied. Um, so we, we started. I'll take you back to the start of the round. So. Um, I was two ahead going into the, the final round, but I was three ahead of Rob Pampling. And the only reason why I mention that is because the first six holes, he was a group in front. He birdied. Yeah. He birdied the first six. And um, it just seemed like I'm in the fairway and I'm looking at the the group in front and I hear a big cheer and there, there's him walking up, picking his ball out of the hole. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? Like, he just keeps birdieing birdie holes. And I was lucky enough that I was three under through the first five, um, but I was tied tied with him. Anyway, cut a long story short. I'm going to skip a little bit there, mm. but um, we got to the, the 16th hole and I was one back and I knew that he bogeyed and um, I parred that hole, so we were tied. Um, and then standing on 17, uh, I was looking up at the green and I saw him three-putt. And um, that's kind of where the story ends for me because I can't really remember hitting my shot mm. into the 17th. Um, and I couldn't remember this. I'm talking like a day later. I couldn't couldn't really well, I could re- remember it vividly. But right now I can't mm. can't remember standing over it, hitting it, seeing the ball, anything like that. Um, mainly because I was in, I guess, a different sort of mindset that was just like I needed to block everything out and I just needed to concentrate. But I hit it close, I birdied, and I was two ahead. And I felt a massive relief when I was going up to the 18th. Not to say that it's the easiest tee shot, but I, f- I felt like I had the tournament. Like I, if I parred it, I couldn't lose. I didn't think he was going to hold his second shot, especially after I saw him dropping his ball after he hit it in the water. Yeah, well, sport a few, that, 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 that 18th tee shot sport a few people unstuck over the yeah. journey at that course. Yeah, so he, um, we, got, we got up onto the tee and, and they were just hitting their second shots and I was obviously intently watching his shot to see where, where he went, if he went close or not. Um, and I saw him hit it and then um, not too long after he hit it, I remember it really clearly, not too long after he hit it, I saw him kind of walk off in like disgust and he was like looking at his caddy and, and stuff and didn't see it go in the water or anything but then not too long after I saw him dropping it um, just short of the water so obviously where the ball had crossed and um, then I, I kind of backed away from my tee shot because I didn't want to hit up on them and I kind of talked to my caddy I'm like I think he's hit it in the water and he's gone yeah he's hit it in the water and <laughs> some expletives there like you better hit this in the fairway <laughs> and um yeah, I guess standing over that that drive, I just kind of knew that if this goes in the fairway, the tournament's mine. I just, I, uh, so many things could have gone wrong. I probably should have hit wedge off the tail. I should have hit three wedges and got to the green, like just to be safe. <laughs> but so many things could have gone wrong. But I just had, yeah, I guess so much belief that I wasn't going to lose this. I just, I, yeah, you just kind of know. You have so much confidence and, and I guess desire to win, and the that moment of like. Yep, this is this is already done before I've hit it. Yeah, crowds. Can you hear, can you know the crowds come into effect there? You know, can you hear people talking to you in the crowds? You yeah, uh, and I was lucky that week that there was a lot of support for me. Yeah, if I'm, yeah, I yeah, I had absolutely. a lot of support. Every, 
nearly every single time, and I look back on it so fondly, but I remember like a few times, like you're walking from a green to a tee and people are patting you on the back and, you know, like saying, come on, come on. Like like those memories for me, that will stick with me forever. That yeah. was the most enjoyable week that I've, I've probably ever had, yeah. I love, I love hearing it from you and I'm very lucky to be able to sit across from you and, and hear it because I, I, I get good feelings just <laughs> hearing hearing it myself. Um, tell you one. Yep. I remember quite a sizable check for yourself yeah. at the time you know yeah. you don't have to look too far back through the interwebs <laughs> to you know see how much it was what did you do with it all um so yeah that uh that that week the story came out about my dad and his his cancer so um um a lot of it went towards like say his his health and mm. and looking after him but also paid off my parents house with that and wasn't too much left over i didn't i wasn't I've never really been one of those guys to like buy a car or like have flashy watches or, or yeah, like those sort of things. Uh, basically, just looked after my family and, and my parents because I'm not like I said, I'm not in this child. They're they're everything for me, so I wanted them to experience it just as much as me. And and um, yeah, so that's that's basically where all that went. But then I guess the future years was now I've I've won that. I've got exemptions overseas. I've got exemptions into much bigger tournaments. Now I've got I guess reassess where I want to um, take my career and, and I needed a bit of money to, to kickstart that. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, I when I w- realised what you'd done with that, I, you know, once again, you know, it was a very admirable thing to do and, you know, I've never I've never won a golf tournament, yep. so I never won that type of money, but I, I respect you for what you've done because, uh, you know, oh, maybe, uh, maybe not everyone would do that. I don't think everyone has done that, you know, that gets into that position to win uh, things like that maybe they do after they win several but i don't know but um yeah it was very good of you to do that and but it was for absolutely a very valid reason you know to look after your dad who was you know health yeah. was struggling and and i'm glad to know that he's still still with us yeah he's still still hanging around so yeah in february of that year that's why i guess that week for me personally or my family personally like is it, it was a very emotional week like yeah. it's a very like something that um it's like a fairy tale. Like it honestly, like it, it actually feels like it feels like a, like a yeah like a storybook. But um, in February of that year, he was he was diagnosed, and they said you know you you only got six months to live. You you're probably not going to see Christmas, and this was a week before Christmas. So um, you can imagine like yeah. when I came back to Melbourne, how how nice it was for yeah our family and and obviously close friends to be celebrating Christmas all together. Um, and then then from that, yeah, we looked. Looked after my dad like his health wise, and, and yeah, he's still kicking on eight, eight odd years later, eight nine years later. Um, yeah, so for I guess me, it's it's a really nice feeling knowing that I could contribute yeah. to extending his life and and uh, him now seeing his his two little grandkids and yeah, no, it's, it's nice. great, mate. Yeah. It's great. Well done. So golf after that, you know, obviously got some exemption exemptions, mm-hmm. and uh, you were able to move. You played a little bit in Asia, played went back to Europe. Yep. Yeah, Europe played one event in the States, the Bridgestone, which is by far the biggest event that I played. But um, my main goal was to try and get on the European tour. Um, main reason is because most of my exemptions were associated with the European tour or co-sanctioned with the European tour. Um, my win at the Aussie PGA, it was, it was co-sanctioned with One Asia. So I had basically a full One Asia tour card um, and then some... Um, events on the European tour or co-sanctioned with European tour. So I then joined up with Chubby Chandler. I don't know if you know Chubby, yeah. ISM. Yeah. yeah, so... The manager for all the British superstars, yeah. absolutely, so pretty much. at the time, I yeah. felt super embarrassed, but it was um, 
Lee Westwood, um, Louis Oosthausen, Charles Schwartzel, um, a few guys, and then Daniel Popovich, <laughs> like, like the number thousand in the world golfer, and you've got the other six who are top fifty in the world. But I kind of lived off the coattails of those guys because if they got into an event, Chubby would use them as as bait to try and get mm. me into the event. And um, I was lucky enough to play, I think, four events off off invites just through that. Um, I think I played the total of six maximum. Um, I think I only earned. Probably shouldn't say only earned, but I missed out on my my tour card by about thirty grand or forty grand. I can't yeah. remember exactly what it was, but wasn't super disappointed because then I could come home. I yeah. spent, I spent, I think it was nine months um, of that year. So keep in mind, like my life, I've only really lived in Melbourne. Yes, when I played that mini tour, I spent a little bit of time away, but I spent then nine months away when my dad's obviously not well, um, and I just wanted to go home. Yeah. I, I. I in the end, I, I hated being away. I hated living out of suitcase. I hated not having a friend to sit down and have dinner with. Um, mm. And you sit on a plane. You, yeah, it's a it's a lonely, lonely life. So yeah, that time that I spent in Europe and Asia that following year, I actually I didn't enjoy it all, especially mm. near the end of it. Yeah. Do do a lot of guys struggle with that sort of thing that come from overseas that you know aren't in that you know that upper gold echelon, you know that aren't flying in someone else's jet or you know that sort of thing. <laughs> Do they struggle with that that you've that you've learned and you've seen? Um, I think for me it might have been a little bit of an exception because a lot of those guys, I guess, that, that get to that level, they've either come through like say Golf Australia High Performance Squad or a VOS where they get sent, mm. um, and they're kind of they're open to that a lot earlier than what I was. That was almost the first time that I spent overseas, really, and I'm and I'm all of a sudden needing to do my own tickets yeah. and flights and and all that sort of stuff. So twenty five or six to buy the stage, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah twenty twenty six, I think, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, um, yeah, I struggled with it. I wouldn't say a lot of those, yeah, like Golf Australia kids and stuff do as much as I did. Well, they've they've got a lot of finance behind them. But um, if I were to do it again or give them any advice, um, it would be make sure that you've got a friend or someone that's going to come and visit you. Like organise that mm. um, because that's it's uh, invaluable having mm. that. Like Zoom and and Facebook and and all those sort of things is okay. But just having that human interaction, is, there's nothing like it. Um, because there's times, I, I've always been, I guess, a sociable person, but there's times where you just feel so lonely. Yeah. And it's 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 really hard. I, I definitely had some dark moments there, yeah. So I guess that puts a lot of perspective for even the, the, the big guys that you mm. see, you know, that get a lot of the media coverage, why when you see their entourage, a lot of it is yeah, sometimes it includes their close friend, their buddy, yep. you know, blah, blah, yep. blah. And... It's probably no different for them, you know. They they're not wanting for, you know, lack of room service or anything, sure. but but they still need that connection to yep. to to that. So yep. yeah, because you were living, you're based out of Croatia. That was uh, yeah, that was with the Alps tour. Right. So okay, yeah, li- lived in Croatia with family. Yeah. Um, and that was my mum's one of eleven kids, and um, so lived with some cousins over there just out of Zagreb. Um, but when I was yeah, obviously playing on tour, just it's it's traveling. week to week, yeah, yeah. hotels and. You're basically seeing a hotel room, a, a golf course, and, and an airport. That's favorite yeah. place to play in on the European tour when you were there. Or have to be Scotland. Yeah, no, have to be. No. Yeah, said that eight thing, like There's no problems there. That's the eight thing you said to me. Dunhill Links. That was probably one of my most enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. St Andrews, Carnoustie, Kingsbury. That's that's beautiful there. Who did you play with? Ah, uh, I played with Brendan Grace. Uh, Andy O'Sullivan, mm-hmm. 
And the third one was Espen Kofstad from Denmark. Yeah. Yeah, right. But the amateur that I played with, he actually paid £22,500 to play with me because uh, there's some plays that actually get raffled off. Um, and, uh, yeah, some of the am- other amateurs that you play with are so wealthy. Like I play with a multi-billionaire. Have you ever heard of Cola? Like the toilet yeah. Cola, yeah. K-O-H-L-E-R? I played with him, David Cola. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, what's he, what, uh, he Whistling Straits? Or Whistling yeah, Straits, yeah. yeah. He also owns the Old Course Hotel. Ah, that's right. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes correct, correct way, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you played with Mr. Kohler. Yeah. And he hid it in the hotel on the 7th of St. Ma- As many people do. <laughs> what what letter did you go over? <laughs> what letter, did you have a letter? Did you, Katie, say it? Just said it, just said it over the all in the old course. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't, can't remember. remember. Can't remember. Didn't, yeah. worry, didn't worry about hitting it. It was just like going 300 <laughs> down. Yeah. Make a par? Make par? Yeah. I actually birdied the 17th. Really? The seven, yeah. Driver 7-iron. Driver it was a bit into the wind. Driver 7-iron um, to... Ten odd feet and thirty. Yeah, I don't know if you remember or not, but you remember on the uh, the old course hotel at the end, and yep. as the corner goes around, there's a little pub there called the Jigger Inn. Yes, I hit it that close to the OB that I was able to have you know almost take a sip of the uh, tourist beer as they were laughing at me for nearly hitting, hitting an <laughs> OB. That's how. That's how. Uh, Popular spot. That's how well my block cut went off that uh, that hole. Interesting, mate. Really, yeah. Dunhill Links looks like a fun fun place to be. Fun um, place. You know. It's a great part of the world. Yeah. Good tournament, a lot of yeah. fun, bit of money, yeah. all that sort of thing. So, mate, um, you said you liked when you came home and you were, you know, quite comfortable back at home. But, mm. you know, what happened when when you said like that's it? I'm not playing. I'm not going on tour anymore. What was? Yeah, it must have been a tough decision. Yeah. Was that? Um, what part so of that's it's that? a few years later. Um, I've had some bad injuries playing yeah. golf. I wouldn't blame my. Um, I guess step away from golf on my injuries, but it had a big contri- contribution to, I guess, um, being at home a lot more than than what was probably initially planned. Um, so my step away from golf was was probably two years in the making. To mm. be honest with you, I struggled for the last couple of years that I played golf. Um, confidence levels dropped. Um, guys that I was better than before overtook me, um, and I just never really felt like I got my game back. And that's by no lack of trying or practicing. I probably practiced harder. I definitely practiced harder and and worked my absolute butt off and and lived and breathed and ate golf balls basically for the last couple of years, but I was almost getting worse or mm. going backwards, and that's that's when I decided that's um, you know I'm not looking back on this without regrets. So I'm not looking back and wishing that I did something different. So um, yeah, I was very comfortable in making the decision to to be like that's that's me. Yeah. Put my hand up and so so for the young golfers and future golf stars and the young existing pros that might listen to this somewhere in Australia or around the world, would you have done anything different during that time? You know, you said you were grinding really hard and, you know, but the the impact was the inverse yeah. way. Would, would you say, don't do this, do do this? Have a, have a like, I guess, a, also a different passion. Yeah. Um, you, you need to be able to switch off. You have to be able to switch off. Otherwise, you're just going to drive yourself insane. And mm. for me, I didn't switch off. Like, I guess it, it's, it kind of works like retrospective to what everyone says like you know work as hard as you can and, and you'll re- see the rewards um but for me yeah just i guess it's really bad to say to kids like you know like have have something else as your passion and then golf as your side note but um yeah for me it just didn't work i guess yeah Cause I, I can't really give advice to like because i've worked my absolute butt off to get to where i was it's not like it came by a fluke or anything like that all the guys that, that are out there they work 
so much harder than what you can imagine. Um, not just at the golf course, but off the golf course. Um, and but yeah, for me, my game just just fell away when I was when I was doing it. I don't know how well you know Lee Westwood from being in the same not really, stable, no. not really. No. But you know, when I look at you know reflect on what you've just said, and I look at maybe some of the current crop of bigger world names, I look at Westy, who's getting to you know, he's my age sort of thing. Yep. He looks like he's now trying to have fun. Yeah, enjoying it. Just playing European tour instead of travelling everywhere in the US, yeah. He's got his son yep. caddying for him sometimes, his you know, girlfriend caddying for yep. him sometimes. We saw um, Stuart Sink what, about a month ago as well. Yep. We had his son caddying for him. like think, Things like that. I think, there you go, I think you've got to be really happy off the golf course mm. to, I guess, things to fall in place on the golf course. So, yep. yeah, make sure that you're happy off the golf course. There you go. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And is there anything else about that part of your life that you want to, you know, Drop on us, or want to tell us, or share with us. Probably, probably if there was a goal, I was going to say, if there's anything that I could recommend to to the kids growing up or anything, like don't flip a golf cart and break your ankle. That's probably yeah. the biggest, um, one of the biggest, yeah, mistakes that I've made. And that that for me is what I look back on. Is like, well, I was playing really well leading up to some events. Um, I was that happened on the Thursday. I was leaving on a Sunday to Korea for five weeks uh, for a five week stretch of tournaments. Um, and I was playing really well. And so that, that for me, when I look back on it, it was like that was a big, big mistake that I made. So, yeah, just don't be an idiot and, and hurt any bones in your body. Yeah. <laughs> now, that was a, what a, obviously a challenging story. Yep. Any funny stories that you've got from your time on tour? You must have a, oh, a, so many. a bag so full many. of those. Yeah, so many. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of, like, sort of catty jokes that, that are out there, but... Um, yeah, I played with a, a number of good players. Like I played with majority of the the really good players. Um, haven't played with Tiger. Um, haven't played with Rory, but I played with yeah, like Spieth, Dustin Johnson, Sergio. I played with all all the good guys, and they're, they're actually all really nice guys. Yeah. Um, everyone sort of asks you, oh, "Who's a jerk?" But no one's really a jerk. They're all you're all in the same boat. You're all kind of doing the same thing. No one's an asshole out there. Everyone's nice. Um, but I mean, yeah, there's there's a there's a bunch of funny stories that I could run through. There's probably not enough time, but yeah, pick pick the best one. Um, last round of HSBC Champions, I, I was playing with Henrik Stenson and Brand Snedeker, and so yeah, obviously playing really well. And um, and at the at the time, Stenson was number two in the world, and he, this is when he was dominating um, Europe, like when he won the uh, FedEx Cup and also raced to Dubai, and and Snedeker was number eight in the world. And um, obviously, I'm, I'm, I felt I even felt like I was out of a league. Like these guys are, you know, like world beaters at the game, and I'm, here I am. Um, and uh, I birdied the second hole. I think it was. I could, I'll correct me if I'm wrong, but the par three. I think it's the fourth, maybe. maybe I birdied the third to to be first off on the the fourth of par three, and it's, it's into the wind. And um, I normally hit, or used to normally hit, my five iron about 182 meters. Um, and that's yeah, like that's that's flat out kind of thing for me. And it was about one seventy into the wind. Uh, pin was tucked behind a bunker, and there's a crowd behind the, the the green and whatnot. And so I hit it, and um, it's uh, I smashed it, and it was going like sort of just left of the pin, and just finished behind the, and the crowd starts clapping. So Stenson stands up there as he does, and gets his sort of lean back, and and he hit it. And as he hit it, I looked in his golf bag. Me and my caddy looked in his golf bag. He sits seven iron. And it's gone so high, and uh, it's landed just behind the bunker, but stayed in the rough. And the crowd's going, "Oh!" So he comes back, puts his club in his bag, and he goes, "Oh, I should have hit that a bit lower," kind of thing. 
And so, anyway, Snedeky hits and he hits it to about 30 feet left of the pin. Hits a nice shot 30 feet left of the pin. And we walk off the tee and I said to Henrik, I said, oh, Henrik, you hit that one. Because like, I wanted to learn off mm. these guys and all the time I'd ask them questions. And I said, Henrik, you hit that one pretty high. And he goes, yes, Daniel, you will learn. You hit the ball over the wind, not into the wind. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yeah, there's... there's um, a number of those things, but he was—he was such a funny guy, like yeah. so dry humoured, like just always. I'd, I'd change balls on like a couple of holes later, and I was—I'd change. I'd normally change numbers after nine holes, so I'd use it like say uh, number one for the first nine holes, and number two for the second nine holes, and I'd say on the tenth tee, I'm changing to a, a number three, and he goes, "I don't care." <laughs> <You're> just, <laughs> just so dry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can't imagine what it'd be like to uh, hang out with Henrik Stenson playing in a tournament or hang out in the players' lounge because you know he's one of the guys that I look up to and, and really, um, really do enjoy watching. You know, I remember that year that he won the race yeah. to Dubai, and I think uh, that five, that five would inch, to yeah. an inch. Like yeah. I was staying up late as I do. You know, yeah. I, I rarely get up early for the US tour, but I'll stay up late for the European tour. Yeah. And I remember that five wood and just going, oh my goodness. So that was just a couple of weeks later. Yeah. That 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 event. Yeah. yeah. So he was. Yeah, he was unbelievable. And I was privileged enough to be at the um, 2016 Open. At oh Troon, wow! You know, watching yeah, watching yep. that wow show un- un- just unfold yep. and probably the, one of the greatest one of the best, tournament yeah. golfs. Yeah, great battles. Yep. But just remember getting up close to him. You know, it was the first time I witnessed him in real life. And you know, once again, he's sort of forty somethings. You know, yeah, mm. I'm not sure exactly how old Henrik is, but uh, oh my goodness, yeah, what a beast! Yeah, he's a big boy. What a just big a boy. specimen of a man. Yep. Uh, yeah, no, Henrik. Well. I'm sure this, you've got several of those. Maybe. Oh, so many. Yeah. <laughs> okay, one more, one more, one more. Um, all right, with Jordan Spieth. So I was playing with him and he won earlier that year. I can't remember the event. It might have been the John Deere or so. He chipped in from the bunker on the last. And um, I was talking with him and his caddy, Michael Greller. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were going down the last hole and it's a par five, water in front of the green, uh, but it's, it's a long carry. And we were both very similar length. Uh, kind of off the tee and we, we weren't playing the best but we were last round I can't even remember we might have been like 50th near, near last in the tournament and um, we were having a crack and um, so I've hit it but I've, I've I've carried the water but come up short of the green just on the left and he hit it hit it on the green we're walking up and he goes oh Dan if you ever want to make it with the big boys just you know like come and ask me give me a call and I was singing you jerk like I was thinking you was <laughs> Yeah, so those those sort of stories like happen all the time. There is a lot of banter out yeah. on tour, especially if you're not like yeah up near the lead. If you're like just kind of kicking it with the thirtieth or fortieth place guys, then you yeah you have a bit of banter and there's side bets and and all that sort of stuff happens in tournament yeah, side bets. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, uh, we, we, we well put it this way for me, yes, yeah. um, but maybe not for like say your yeah your Stensons or something. If they're thirtieth or fortieth, you're not going to play for a couple hundred bucks with them. They're going to want to play for yeah. a couple of grand. But um, yeah, there are those those sort of things. Yeah, they happen. It keeps it interesting. Yeah, um, and yeah, you meet a lot of guys along the way as well. So we always like. Play for a bit of cash, sort of, you know, guy that had to have something on the line for, to make it happen. More like say practice round stuff, yeah. yeah. To keep it interesting, yes, you have to. You have to. Um, yeah. You want to keep the competitive juices flowing the whole time, yeah. I think what we might do, Daniel, because we've mm. gone for you know forty five minutes right. and and we haven't even covered off your um, professional career in in the golf industry now, which I do want to do. Sure, we might. Tell a couple more, yeah. You know, another story. We might do this in a part one and part two. Okay. There's no rules around podcasting, you know. Like no it's my podcast, so I can do what I want, right? Yep. Um, 
But caddy-wise, you know, there's always some classic stories around caddies. Oh, yeah. Now, I recently had uh, Gordon, Big G, and yeah. shout-out to Big G. He's just popped the My Love of Golf uh, podcast on his website over at the Glorified Donkey. And Big G is a caddy, professional caddy at uh, Pebble Beach. Right. Has his own podcast called wow. uh, The Real Life Caddy Podcast. Um, and he was recently uh, on the My Love of Golf podcast. Great Scotsman. Has some wonderful caddy stories, like funny guy, as you can imagine. Uh, caddied, for Terry, caddied for Terry Pilkadaris for a wee while and right. also um, Andrew Coulthard. Had some funny stories. You must have some funny stories too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's have them. All right. Uh, there's one, actually, it's not my story. It's Marcus Fraser's story. And uh, he had a caddy. I think it was at Dunhill Links that week. And uh, as you do, you get a local caddy at Dunhill Links because basically if you haven't seen those courses before, you're, you're not even close to some of the local caddies. They know the breaks. They know the lines because a lot of the blind tee shots and stuff. And um, Irish caddy. And uh, they're standing over over like a, a, a shot into a par four green. And he goes, oh, wind's off the left. And he goes, oh, it's off the left, right. He goes, is it off the right or left? Off the left, right. <laughs> so like, like things like that. You stand up. And Marcus was playing really well that week. And there's things like that where you, you look back and you're like, it, it gets you out of your, like, I guess, kind of comfort zone. And it puts you back into, like, I guess, a, a state of, like, you've got to start concentrating. But, um, geez, I... Well, you couldn't get two polar, polar sort of, you know, accents <laughs> and st- and types there. You know, you got Fraser, boy from the bush up in up in Corryong yeah, there. Right. You know, he spent a bit of time in the city, but you know, he's very yeah. much a, you know, I, I don't know Marcus. I've met him a few Great times. Guy, yeah. um, you know, he's met we're members at the same club, but uh, you know what you know what you see is what you get. You know, yeah. he's a good, honest Aussie bloke. Yeah, and you get a mad Irishman going, you know, it's off the right, left, yeah. left, right, <laughs> left, right. <laughs> Is it off the left? And you're like, you, can, you can see Marcus going, what the hell's going on here, mate? Yeah, <laughs> uh, Well, yeah, I can imagine uh, that, that sounds funny. Mm. Mate, um, let's, let's pause it for the moment. Sure. And, uh, and let's come back because I do want to tell uh, the story of you know, your career transition and moving into the world of being the number one Mizuno guy on <laughs> yeah. the ground now. Okay. You, you'd probably be the number one ranked Mizuno staff member golfer now, would you not? I think so. Steve Kent, who's one of my colleagues, he's a, he's a professional in his own right. Um, he'd probably beat me now. I haven't played nearly as much as what he does. but um, Sneaky Kenty. Yeah, he is. We've very. not played golf, but you know he doesn't give too much away, <laughs> doesn't pump up his own tyres, and for me, he's the one that you've got to be worried about. <laughs> yeah, on the always golf the ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, Kenty plays a lot, plays a lot of golf, mm. um, represents the brand very well, and uh, a good good chat plays down the, down the road there from me. Um, all right, let's uh, let's pause it on that. We'll sure. come back for uh, version two, episode two, segment two of the uh, the Daniel Popovich story. Thanks for joining us so far. Thanks, Ross. Join us in episode two.